And we're going to be in verse 17 through 22. By the way, this is probably one of the most difficult, controversial passages in the entire New Testament. Uh, and so we're going to approach this with fear and trepidation and really just trying to see what does God want to show us uh, through his word today, how we might can apply these things that Peter's addressing. Peter's pulling some different parallels in this uh, passage. There's just a couple verses here that get really sticky in the weeds unless you really think through and pray through what is Peter trying to mean here as he's trying to make some analogies here from the Old Testament, particularly uh, the Noah, uh, Genesis flood and, and Noah and the ark. Uh, but I pray that from this, God's going to encourage you, that he's going to give you boldness, that you'll be encouraged to, to stand in the gap, honestly, as a believer, as a righteous one who's striving to live a life of integrity uh, for the gospel, for our community, that you might live a righteous life and you might uh, give up your life as a righteous one for the unrighteous, just as Jesus did for us. So let's look at verse 17, as Peter is describing here and really imploring the Christians, for it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Now think about that loaded statement he just said here. It's better if it's God's will to suffer for doing the right thing for righteousness than for doing the wrong thing or doing evil. For Christ also, in the same way, Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous. If you're marking up your Bible, underline that little phrase right there. That's an important phrase here. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. And after being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Yes, that is one long sentence. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but from the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. Yet another long sentence. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Okay, so again, we're going to just start here in verse 17 and work our way through the passage. Verses 17 and 18, for it is better if it's God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous, for the unrighteous to bring you to God. And this is point number one. Jesus, the righteous one, died for the unrighteous, that being us. Now, Again, we've explained over the past many weeks that a great theme of the book of 1 Peter is suffering, that we are to expect suffering as we live a Christian life out in a pagan majority culture, that we should expect hardship. And that, in fact, in verses 17 and 18, Peter draws an interesting parallel here between what we've been called to do, what we should expect as we live righteously out in a pagan culture, and how Jesus was treated by the world around him. And both, by the way, are examples of the righteous one or the righteous ones sacrificing for the sake of the unrighteous or for the ones that are out there in the world that have not yet encountered Christ. Now, again, I've challenged you over these past few weeks to take a stand for Christ, regardless of how you might be received. And we have been called uh, to live and strive for a righteous life. That doesn't mean we're holy. That doesn't mean we're righteous in and of ourselves. But we are striving for righteousness. And really, again, your lifestyle as a believer, Christian, your lifestyle as a believer should be an apologetic for the gospel. How you live your life, how you are striving for righteousness should point to others. And people say, wow, look at how that person is carrying themselves. Look how they react in certain situations. I want what they have. And as we live our lives in such a way that they may notice that Jesus has made a difference in our life. And Peter explains here that you might have to suffer for doing the right thing. Now, again, we don't usually think about someone suffering for right. We kind of think, you know, people kind of 
get what they deserve, right? You, you get what you deserve. You do wrong, you should be punished. Well, here he's saying that you might have to suffer for doing the right thing. And we need to be prepared for this kind of reality in our world, in our time, because suffering is not just connected to doing evil. In fact, there's a lot of folks out there uh, in the Christian landscape that say, well, if you love God and you do the right things and all these, you do all these things, you, you turn the right lever, you, you pull the right levers, turn the right knobs, you live in such a way God's going to protect you, you're going to be healthy, you're going to be wealthy, God's going to take care of you. And that's crazy talk as, as you think about it compared to the, the Word because the Word says you might do the right thing, you might live in a righteous way, and you might be misunderstood and you might be mis- mistreated because uh, of living in such a way and the, the world not being able to understand in a way that honors the Lord. And by the way, Peter explains here in verses 17 and 18, if that happens, you're in good company. You're in great company because Jesus was righteous. Jesus was treated in a such, a, such a way. In fact, as, as Christians, we would say our role model is Jesus, the Son of God. He stepped down out of glory. He humbled himself. He became obedient to death. He took on the likeness of a servant, and he lived a perfectly righteous life. And I have a question. How did that go for him? How did the world respond to him? How did the world treat him? I mean, Jesus, of all people, who's living out a righteous life, how did the world respond uh, to him? He did the right things if there ever was someone who did the right things. And so if the world would respond to the only perfect, sinless son of God to ever walk the face of the earth, if they treated him in such a way, then maybe we should also expect the same thing. Because Jesus suffered. Jesus suffered miserably. Jesus suffered miserably as if he was a criminal mercilessly on the cross. He suffered miserably on behalf, the righteous, for the unrighteous that they might be saved. Jesus, the righteous one, bore on his body as he hung on the cross the sins of the unrighteous. This is why Jesus is saying things on the cross like, forgive them, Father, uh, for they don't know what they are doing. He hung on the cross. He died paying the price for us. And so we have a picture of the righteous one, Jesus, sacrificing himself for the unrighteous. And so this is our legacy as his disciples, the righteous ones giving up their lives, sacrificing selflessly for the unrighteous. Read again verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, for the righteous, uh, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? To bring you to God. Wow. What was Jesus' motivation? To bring us to God. He died for us. We're told in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 9. Romans says, uh, Paul says this way in Romans. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. Listen, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Oh, what a picture here that Jesus died for sinners, the righteous for the unrighteous. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, the righteous for the unrighteous. And so, like our Savior, we have been called to selflessly offer up our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is our reasonable act of worship, as Paul later says in Romans 12. Paul said this in Romans chapter 9, verses 2 through 4. He said, I have such great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish uh, that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Do you hear uh, the anguish in Paul's heart as he's saying, I wish I could stand in the gap myself. I would, listen, Paul says, I would go to hell. 
I would be sent to hell if it meant that my people uh, could all understand and have a knowledge of the gospel and trust in Jesus Christ. I would give up my life. I would sacrificially lay down my life for my people to know Jesus. Oh, if some people in Pickens would have that kind of urgency. We'd lay down our lives in a sacrificial nature to to say, you know what, I'll take their place. This is what Jesus did for us. This is what Paul's saying about his own people. This is the kind of heart that will do whatever it takes to reach people with the gospel. He said, I'd take their place. I would face eternal death if it meant for them to have eternal life. By the way, uh, that kind of evangelism is very effective. We see stories like that in the first few centuries of the Christian church. I'm going to re- tell you a story about a couple who gave up their life. They were some of the early martyrs of the church in about the 270s, 280s AD. So this was, you know, about two centuries after Jesus' death and resurrection. It's still the early uh, part of Christianity. Uh, You know, Christianity becomes the official uh, religion of the Roman Empire about 313 or 323 AD. So this is, uh, you know, about 50 years before this happens. And so Diocletian was the emperor at this time. And across the Roman Empire, there were uh, mass persecutions of Christians. Some of the waves of, of persecutions even happened 10 years before Christianity was adopted in 313 and 323. Now, this man named Timothy, he was married to a girl named Mara. you got to understand, they've been married for 20 days. Mara was 17 years old at this time. Uh, Timothy and Mara lived in a small town on the outskirts in the countryside of Egypt, and they were under the Roman Empire, under Roman rule. And they were believers. In fact, Timothy was a reader in his local church. He was a, a lecturer. He, he would spend his time in the services reading from the scriptures. He would take those scriptures and he would go read to the people of his village. He would go and preach the gospel out in his village. And his job was to protect the scriptures, the, the, holy, the copy of the Holy Bible. Now, each of us probably has copies of the Bible. You've got a few laying around your house. You've got one on your phone today. But in that time, in the first few centuries of the church... Nobody had copies of the Bible. They were, they were precious to own. And so a church probably had a copy of the Bible. And so Timothy's job was to take care of the Holy Scriptures to protect them and make sure that nothing happened to them. And so uh, merely 20 days into Timothy's new marriage, he was arrested and he was denounced by the local authorities as a Christian and as a keeper of the holy books. His captors demanded that Timothy uh, turn in his copy of the Bible and that he recant his faith. Timothy refused. The Roman governor at the time, Governor Arian, remember that name, insisted that he be tortured until he turned over his Bible. He refused. So Timothy had white hot iron shoved into his ears. He was blinded. He had his eyelids cut off. He was hung upside down with a stone around his neck, and yet he still would not budge and he would not recant. And so the authorities thought, you know what, he's a newlywed, let's go, we'll get by way of his wife to Timothy, we'll, we'll take her on and see if she might can in, intimidate her and get her to recant and get her to get Timothy to deny Christ and to turn in his Bibles. And so they had Mara arrested. And so Governor Arian arrested her and asked her to appeal to her husband to recant and to give up her copy of the scriptures. But instead of giving in, Mara joined her husband in defense of their faith. And so the Romans set out to make an example of Mara as well as Timothy for their stubbornness. Her hair was pulled out. All her fingers were cut off. She was miraculously, she survived being immersed in a cauldron of boiling water. 
And having seen enough, the governor, Arian, at that time, had this young couple nailed to two crosses on walls facing each other where they were to meet their demise. For 10 days, Timothy and Mara were nailed to a cross facing each other in the jail. And all people could hear were them praying and singing of praises to God, encouraging one another to persevere and to hold on as they suffered for Christ on their crosses. On the 10th day, they both passed away. Now, I told you there was a man named Arian, who was the governor, who took personally this case, and that he witnessed their courage in the midst of persecution. It so inspired him that soon afterward, he became a Christian, and he was a martyr himself for the gospel, St. Arian of Alexandria. Those kind, listen, those kind of testimonies captured the hearts of the unrighteous in their communities. What are you being asked to do for the gospel? How are, how are you being challenged uh, in a sacrificial, selfless way as an American Christian today? Men and women like St. Timothy and St. Mara willingly endured persecution like this. And that, by the way, there are a couple of thousands of individuals just like their story who gave up their lives. Why? Because they were convinced the gospel is true and Jesus Christ saves. And they wanted their culture and their community to know it. That kind of witness, that kind of selflessness, that kind of sacrificial nature will get the attention of an unrighteous culture. The righteous for the unrighteous. Remember I told you that happened about the 260s, 270s, somewhere in there, A.D.? Well, Jesus was born in the first few decades of the A.D. era. By the year 323, because of witnesses like Mara and Timothy, Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire when less than 300 years after Christianity was birthed. Why? Because the righteous awaken to the conscience of the unrighteous around them. And I have a question for you. What are you willing to do for your family and for your neighbors and for your community to know Jesus? Think about Timothy and Mara. Think about what you might do for the gospel if called upon. The righteous for the unrighteous. That story has haunted me since I found it. These next few verses are the difficult passages here. Those are what we just read in 17 and 18 makes such sense. Verses 18 through 20 are difficult. But I think there's a word for us here. And I want you to see Jesus after he defeated death, after he defeated sin, that he takes a victory lap. And this is the righteous one taking a victory lap. Verse 18, he was put to death. It's at the end of verse 18. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. And after being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. This is the time of Noah. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. Those eight are Noah and his family. So I want you to think for just a moment. We know Jesus died. Uh, we know Jesus was resurrected. But have you ever considered what Jesus did between Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday? What happened in those few days, in between Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. Well, we know a couple of things to be true. I mean, we know where he, some of the places he went because of what we've been told in the scriptures. We told, we're told that Jesus uh, told uh, the, the repentant thief on the cross, he said, Today you will be with me where? In paradise. You'll be with me in paradise. That holding place for the righteous ones, those who are in right relationship with God. We know that. We also know, as it says in verse 18 at the end there, that when he was put to death, uh, that he was made alive in his spirit. Now, 
this is not the controversial part. As best as we can understand it, uh, Jesus died, and Jesus experienced what each of us, by the way, is going to experience at our own death. When you die, your spirit leaves your body to go, and for Christians to be in the presence of, of God, uh, to be in paradise with him. For those who are separated from God, there is a place of torment, a place, a holding place, if you will, until the end of days, where both of those places, what we call heaven, what we think of as hell or Sheol, those two places will be emptied eventually into their permanent setting. We're told in Revelation that that lower place will be emptied out into the lake of fire and then also those that are in heaven will be emptied out into the new heaven and the new earth we know that jesus went to that place called paradise we know that his spirit was set free from his body just like what happens with us we know that he uh, also uh, his spirit was leaving because as he declared on the cross as he was dying he said into your hands father i commit my spirit and after his death after the price was paid Jesus declared with his dying breath, Testalistai, which means paid in full. It is finished. I have finished my, my race. I have paid the price. His spirit is then set free, and he enters into that spiritual plane. Now, evidently, paradise is not the only place Jesus visited between Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. Peter tells us that he went and made a proclamation to imprisoned spirits that were there because of their death at the time of Noah's flood in Genesis. Now let's stop there for a minute. Remind ourselves about the story of the, the Genesis flood. Noah was called by God, he and his family, to build an ark because there was a flood that was going to come. And Noah spent over a century of his life building this ark. He was a preacher. And he was to call the people to repentance. Noah challenged his generation, all the men and women of his culture, to repent and turn to God, and nobody listened. The heart of man was so hardened by that day that no one turned uh, to God. Noah and his sons and his, uh, his uh, son, uh, daughters-in-law, and then also two of every kind except for the sacrificial animals, there were seven of those that were brought, of every kind of that, that were brought onto the boat, and every Every creature, listen, every creature besides Noah and his family and the two and the seven of every kind of animal uh, were destroyed by a great flood. And I want you to think about these folks as they were uh, sent to this place, as they died, that they went to this place to basically uh, pay the penalty for their sin and for their unrepentance. And this is where they're called uh, imprisoned spirits. They have been set free from their bodies. They're in a place also imprisoned. And these imprisoned folks are people who died in Noah's flood. Now, it says here that Jesus made a proclamation to them. He proclaimed to them. Now, that word is ekaruso, which means to preach. It means to herald. It literally means to declare victory. It's a victory lap. This is a serious, formal word with overtones of proclaiming a truth or claiming the victory in a battle. And so what we're told here is that Jesus went down to Sheol. He proclaimed victory to the poor souls who died in the flood, who had to pay the penalty for their sins. And because they were uh, reluctant, reticent to, to repent and turn to God, they didn't have the option like you and I have of being able to have the Son of God standing in their place and offering forgiveness. They had to pay the price for their sins and for their unrepentance. They didn't have Jesus as a substitute for their sins. In fact, they had to die for their own sins. It was too late for these poor souls. Noah had called them to repent, and he gave them a hundred years to turn to God, but they refused, and they had to pay the penalty for their collective and individual sins. They didn't accept Noah's message of repentance and step out in faith and get on that boat, that boat of the covenant, the covenant ark of God's salvation. Even though it was too late for them, at least 
they would know through Jesus' proclamation that all had been made right for the future of humanity. Not all of humanity would have to perish for their sins. God would save a remnant by faith in the risen Savior. We're told that Jesus, when his spirit was set free, went down into Sheol, that holding place where the evil dead go, and there he, he were there awaiting their eternal punishment, and he said to them, it is finished. It has been accomplished. No more dying for sin. No more separation from God. Humanity has been saved by my sacrifice. It's finished. Same thing he said on the cross when he died. I believe it's the same thing he proclaimed. He echoed claimed victory in that place. Peter is reminding us that many had to pay the penalty for their own sins in the time of Noah. They didn't have they did not repent. They had to pay for their own sins. But really, the Genesis flood story is not some cheery, cartoonish, you know, little boat with Noah bebopping on the Lido deck with bobblehead giraffes. You know what I'm saying? That's not what the Noah flood story is about. It's not some cutesy children's book. The Genesis flood was shock and awe. It was a demonstration of how serious God takes sin. The flood was a divine house cleaning. It was a great reset of the earth. And only Noah and his immediate family survived that dreadful storm. Every other living creature except for the animal pairs and the groups of seven for the sacrifices were preserved on the ark. Everybody else paid the price for the sins of humanity. And that is how seriously God takes sin. You want to know how else God takes, how, how else you want to see how seriously God takes sin? Look to the cross. As God sent his only son to pay the price for those sins. That's how, that's how serious God takes sin, that he would send his only begotten son to be the sacrifice. Every other living creature except those animals preserved and, and, and Noah's family paid the price for their sins. Now think about this. God sent his son Jesus to neutralize sin's death grip on creation. And the ark itself, the picture of the ark, as we, we did this a while back, look in the Old Testament to these Easter eggs, we call them Easter eggs, they point to uh, symbols, things that we see in the New Testament. The ark is an Old Testament Easter egg. It's symbolic of the cross that is to come. Hang, hang with me here. Both are made of trees, both the ark and the cross. Both are instruments of hope and redemption. Only those on the ark... That great ship made out of wood were saved from the punishment of their sin. Likewise, only those who place their faith in the redemptive cross, the cross of wood of Jesus, are saved from the punishment of sin. The flood and the ark are also inversions of each other. In the flood, God killed off all of humanity except for one man and his family. At the cross, God killed one man to save the rest of humanity. Using both the ark and the cross, God asked for humanity to trust him, to turn from their sin, to repent, and to be saved. From both stories, there are those who refuse to repent and will bear the punishment for their sins. But for those who would trust in God, those who would ask him to forgive them of their sins, those who would acknowledge him before death, he offers salvation. And the ark and the cross are beautiful pictures of God's redemption in the midst of all the unrighteousness. The righteous, the unrighteous. Think about that for a minute. The ark is a picture of redemption. It's also a terrible picture of the consequences of sin. And I don't, listen, I don't want anybody in this room to bear the consequences of your sin. As dreadful as what we read about here is... Most dreadful is the place that those imprisoned souls are now, in a place separated from God because of their sin. They're in that dreadful holding place because they did not repent, because they would not trust 
in the living God. I ask you a question today. Are you ready? Have you repented? Have you trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of sin? Have, have you allowed, listen, have you allowed the, the tree of the covenant, the cross, to be applied to your life? Can it be your ark that might save you from the punishment of sin? You see, this is the beauty that we see in the ark and in the cross. And this is why Peter is using the ark to explain this. And he says here that this, uh, this, this beautiful picture not only symbolizes salvation, but also there's a picture here of baptism. Now, this kind of blew my mind as I'm thinking about this picture of baptism and what this looks like. Go back to verse at the end of verse 20 and verse 21. Peter says, in it only a few people, eight and all, this is Noah and his family, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism. That now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. Peter explains here that baptism is a symbol of the victory. And again, he's making a parallel here. Uh, we have the ark and the cross. Now we have this picture of the flood and of baptism. The flood was a baptism of sorts for Noah and his family. Peter explains that in the ark, uh, through that ark experience, only eight people were saved. In this treacherous time on the ark, they were surrounded, if you will, surrounded by water. They were baptized, if you will, in the water as they were surrounded by water. This was a symbolic baptism. Now we know in the scriptures, baptism is symbolic of many things. Uh, water in particular is symbolic of many things. Water is an amazing symbol in the scriptures. It's associated with uh, passage and provision. Important moments where God provided passage and important moments where God provided provision. Or is God provision. Consider uh, when the Israelites crossed the Red Sea. Consider when they later crossed the Jordan River. Consider when the disciples get on the boat and cross over the Sea of Galilee. God, Jesus calms the storm. Peter walks on the water there. These are important moments of passage and provision just like uh, with Noah in this passage and provision of God. Water is also symbolic of cleansing. Think about ritual baths, the mikvahs in the Old Testament where people were uh, cleansed of their disease or of their sin and they're told to go bathe as an outward symbol in the Old Testament and the New Testament of God's provision and God's cleansing. Even the flood here is symbolic of a baptism of the earth. The earth is cleansed. The earth is, is cleaned out. It's like God took his pressure washer and just knocks it all down because he wants it all taken away and cleansed and to be able to start over again with Noah and his family. And so the members of Noah's family saved here in the ark were symbolically baptized in those rising, rising waters as God hit this great reset for the world. And the world is cleansed as were Noah and his family. In fact, when, they, when Noah steps off the boat, the first thing he and his family does is they make an altar and they reaffirm their commitment and their relationship to the Lord as they get off the boat because they had gone through this amazing experience with, with their creator. Our New Testament baptism is a likewise symbol here of, of God's cleansing, of, of a passage of provision. It's an outward sign of an internal cleansing here. As Peter says in verse 21, it's not removing dirt from the body, but baptism is a cleansing of the sin. It's a, it's a reckoning of, of the conscience. He says it's an act, he says in verse 21, an act that gives you a, a clear conscience. Now, I love this uh, verse because it says here, verse 21 again, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. The act of baptism is a pledge. That word uh, in the original language uh, is, is basically uh, one of commitment. It's a, a pledge of allegiance, if you will, to Jesus as someone is 
baptized. But the other way that that word could be interpreted is also a response. In other words, it could be said, uh, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the response of a clear conscience toward God. In other words, a baptism is a response. And I'll say this, once you get saved, once you ask Jesus into your life, Next thing you better be doing is finding some water somewhere. That's what we have in the scriptures because you need to publicly identify. You need to publicly uh, declare your faith if Jesus has truly changed your life. You can't keep it to yourself. You need to publicly identify and, as he says here, be given a clear conscience uh, toward God. And by the way, that's definitely worth celebrating. Um, By the way, do you have a clear conscience toward God today? Is your conscience clear? If you were to die today and stand before God, and God were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? What would you, what would, would you stand before him boldly, confidently? Not because of your goodness or even anything bad you've done, but because of your faith in Jesus Christ, knowing that you have been forgiven, that your conscience is clear. If, if your conscience is not clear today, can I implore you to nail your sin to the cross today? To go to Christ and declare your faith in him and trust him and trust his death on the cross. Let Jesus be your substitute because he willingly took your place on the cross. And as you trust in Jesus, as you repent of your sins, you surrender your life to him and your soul gets cleaned out. And as Peter says here, you get a clear conscience before God. And I'll just say there's no better feeling in the world than that feeling of having a clear conscience before God. I don't want anybody in this room to pay the penalty for their sins like those people at the time of Noah who were unrepentant and didn't turn to God and now are having to pay eternally because of their rejection of God. If, you have, if you're in that place, I need you to consider repenting today, turning to Jesus, and make things right with the Lord. Don't squander this opportunity before it's too late. Trust in Him with all of your heart. Now this last uh, verse and a half is where I want to end. And I think it just gives us this beautiful bookend of this passage because what I'm going to read to you is a picture of Jesus now. We saw how Jesus had to die. We saw how he had to give up his life. We saw uh, that he was resurrected. But, but after that, we know he ascended to be with his Father in heaven. Listen to this at the end of, of, of 21 into 22. It saves you, talking about baptism and salvation, it saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Who, listen, has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels and authorities and powers in submission to him. This picture right here, I hope, fuels you. I hope it fuels your obedience. I hope it fuels and inspires you uh, to do whatever you've got to do uh, for his glory because you see Jesus now. We're told here that he had gone into heaven. Verse 22, he went into heaven and where is he now? He is seated at the right hand of the Father. Now, we're told in other passages that he is seated there, and he is now making intercession for us. He is now acting as a great high priest in the order of Melchizedek, and he is representing us, and he, he has a heart for us. And because we have relationship with him, we now have access to the Father because Jesus is seated at the right hand, and we can boldly approach the throne of God now. We can be New Testament priests because of what Jesus has done. He made an atonement for us, and he now represents us before the Father Notice, by the way, that we talked about how Jesus submitted himself, Jesus humbled himself, Jesus lowered himself to come to earth, but look at what it says at the very end of this verse. He's no longer in a a position of submission. Now all the angels, all the authorities, and all the power are in submission to him in his rightful place. 
And if that's where Jesus really is, and that is what Jesus is really doing, then why don't we stand up for him? Why don't we endure whatever we've got to endure? Why don't we publicly identify with Jesus and let the chips fall where they may? Because I'll tell you this, Jesus is not going to remain seated there at the right hand of the Father. One day, the Father will tell him to come and take his people and bring them home. And when that happens, I want to be ready. I want you to be ready because he won't stay there. He's coming back. And right now, you get a glimpse here of his current glory. And this is a vision of our inheritance as believers. I pray that inspires you. I pray that fuels your heart. I pray that tells you, pushes you to sacrificially and selflessly live your life in such a way that people might see the gospel in your life. That you'll live a heart of repentance. You won't be a a recalcitrant, heavy-hearted, stone-hearted folk toward God like the people in the time of Noah. That you might be repentant, that you might uh, bow the knee to him, that you might submit to him. That you might endure whatever is in front of you for Jesus. That you'll commit to be a witness for Jesus, no matter what the cost would be. That you might acknowledge Jesus publicly through baptism, that you won't give up and you won't give in. And you might represent him so that we might bring many sons to glory. Amen? Get a glimpse of Jesus. Get a glimpse of Jesus now. Seated there. His work is done. You know why he's sitting? Because his work is finished. He's just waiting on the right time. No one knows the day or the hour when Jesus will return. But I do know this. You and I need to be ready. And we need to be on mission when he comes back.